0: You're listening to the sermon audio from The Shore Church, located in North Vancouver. For more information about The Shore, upcoming events, or to donate, you can head to www.theshorechurch.ca. Well, it is good to be with you this morning. This is actually the third time that I've come to The Shore and had the opportunity to uh, open God's Word and to preach uh, here. The very first time was somewhere in the middle of COVID, and so I think there were about six people here. That's all that was able to be here and uh, the lights here are like motion sensor lights. So if no one was moving around, they I think they went off twice in my, in my sermon. But uh, I'm expecting no one needs to get up and kind of wave or do anything like that today. But uh, it is good to come. And as Jer mentioned, I'm part of the task force here. And so have a real affection and fondness for this church. And uh, do pray for you on a regular basis. Uh, I'm actually... Uh, on a sabbatical right now. I'm just kind of wrapping that up. So I have not preached a sermon in about uh, four months time. And uh, I'm here sort of uh, not illegally, but uh, my church really wanted me to take the full break, but I'm going back in a week or so. And uh, in the course of those four months, I've really had the opportunity. Uh, Part of that's just been refreshment and, and kind of refreshment for my own soul, but also on Sundays, it's allowed me the opportunity to go and visit a bunch of different churches. And we have visited churches of all different shapes and sizes, everything, where there's a few dozen people to a few thousand people. There's been traditional worship and more contemporary stuff, all sorts of different things. And one of the things that I've had the opportunity to do that I have not done for many, many years is just to sit under the preaching of God's Word. Uh, and we've uh, we've had that opportunity to listen to a, a number of different uh, pastors and teachers, and some of it has been good, and some of it has been not so good. And I, I really wasn't there just to critique, but I don't often get that opportunity to be a guest in a church unless I'm a guest preacher. And the thing that stood out to me most forcefully through these past few months, as I've had the opportunity to observe what happens in churches, is that what's needed in the church, more than anything, is the plain teaching of God's Word. On more than one occasion, I found myself thinking, you know, all I really want you to do is to open the Bible, to read it, to tell us what it means, and to tell us what the implications of it are, for our lives. It's actually the biblical picture of what it means to preach God's word. The best definition, maybe, the best biblical definition of expositional preaching comes from the book of Nehemiah. In Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 8, it says, they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading." that's really all I hope to do for you today, is to read from this book clearly, to give you the sense of it so that you understand what God is saying to you. So having said all of that, by way of introduction, I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 25. And as you're turning there, let me just tell you that this message, uh, this message is what I would call a sort of back of the napkin kind of message. And the reason I say that is because I actually never set out to preach on Psalm 25. I wasn't going through a series or anything like that. I was simply reading it one day devotionally in a coffee shop. And the basic outline of what I'm sharing with you today is what came from that experience as I stumbled upon that Psalm and it ministered to my soul. And I wrote those notes really on the back of a napkin or on a scrap piece of paper. I ended up sharing that with our staff and elders, but I kept going back to this psalm because it ministered to my own soul. So let me begin by simply reading the psalm for you in its entirety. And this is what it says. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old, "'Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. "'According to your steadfast love, remember me "'for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. "'Good and upright is the Lord. "'Therefore he instructs sinners in the way. "'He leads the humble in what is right "'and teaches the humble his way. "'All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness "'for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. "'For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, "'for it is great.'" Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and, what, and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O oh God, out of all his troubles." Well, that may or may not be a familiar psalm to you. I mean, I can think of a couple choruses that maybe quote one line from that psalm. But this is not like Psalm 23 or one of the other psalms that's so well ingrained in our memories. And I ended up titling this message, The Alphabet of Grace. The reason I chose that title is because this psalm is actually an acrostic poem. Uh, You can't discern that in the English translations that we have, but you can notice that there are 22 verses in this psalm. And the reason there are 22 verses in this psalm is because in the Hebrew alphabet there are 22 letters, and in this psalm in particular, in the original version of this psalm, each verse begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So if we were doing something similar in English, you would have a 26-verse poem, and each verse of that poem would begin with a successive letter of the, of the alphabet. So we would start with A, the next line would begin with B, and we would go all the way down onto Z, and we just make our way through the alphabet. Now, not all psalms do that type of thing, but there are a few that do. The entire book of Lamentations is an acrostic. And we might wonder, well, why would someone go to the trouble... ...of working through this in an alphabetized way. Why would they go through this like that and not just tell us what they think? Well, most scholars think the reasons for doing this are numerous... Uh, One reason is because an acrostic is sort of a mnemonic device. It helps you remember things more easily. And we have to remember that Israel at this time was a completely oral culture. So you didn't have a Bible with Psalm 25 in your living room. The way you knew Psalm 25 was that you remembered it or you memorized it. And it was much easier to memorize if you could just work through it according to the letters of the alphabet. So I think there's, there's, there's something to that. But I think there's actually more to it than that. Acrostics were often used as a way to cover something exhaustively. So if we want to cover a topic exhaustively, we will say something like, well, this is the A to Z of suffering. Or this is the A to Z of dealing with this. And I think Psalm 25 is really the A to Z of dealing with With the kind of trouble that we encounter in this world. That's why I think the alphabet of grace is a fitting title for this psalm. So we're going to make actually two passes at the psalm and consider it under two main headings. The first thing we ought to understand is that we can and should expect all kinds of trouble in our lives. Now, some of you right now are saying, wow, I am so glad I came to church this morning. I'm so glad that, you know, Jer brought this guy in just to tell me that my life is going to be filled with all different kinds of trouble and to do it on a long weekend of all things. But I want to say you ought to consider this kind of a bad news, good news message. There is good news, but in order to discover that good news, we first have to come to terms With the bad news. And the bad news is that that we can and should expect all kinds of trouble in our lives. Uh, This psalm is recounting David's experience in the world, but I think there's something all of us can relate to. And I see at least three different or distinct kinds of trouble that are mentioned in this psalm. The first kind of trouble that we experience is what we could call trouble from without. So listen to verse 2 and verse 19 again. Verse 2 says, Oh my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. And then verse 19, he says, Consider how many are my foes, and with what violent hatred they hate me. Now David had trouble with what he describes as his enemies or his foes. And if you've read through the books of First and Second Samuel, which chronicle the life of King David, then you know that David's life was filled with all sorts of relational conflict, filled with opposition and relational strife. He had trouble with King Saul. He had trouble with the kings from other nations. He had trouble with military leaders who didn't want to serve under him. He had trouble with some of his children. He had trouble with some of his wives. And you can detect the kind of trouble that David experienced all through the psalms as well. A number of the psalms actually begin not just with the ascription, this is a psalm of David, but they begin with a description or a notation about the circumstances that actually prompted David to write those psalms. So the heading for Psalm 3 says, A psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. Psalm 7 has this heading, a Shigayon of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning Cush, a Benjaminite. Now Cush was one of David's enemies or foes, someone who opposed him. The heading of Psalm 18 says, of David, the servant of the Lord, he sang to the Lord the words of this song when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Read through the Psalms and you find a number of headings like that. The point is that David faced all sorts of troubles in his life, all sorts of troubles from without. He experienced lots of relational challenges. Now, I've been doing ministry long enough to know that this is one of the major categories of trouble that people experience in their lives. It's relational trouble. It's trouble from without. And you may be experiencing some of that trouble right now. Sometimes that trouble is experienced even within our own families. You might have conflict with one of your children, or one of your parents, or one of your siblings, or one of your in laws. There's often tension in those types of relationships. Or you might be experiencing that kind of trouble with your spouse, even, or a former spouse. Sometimes we experience this kind of trouble with a a friend or a friendship group or a former friend. It might be a neighbor or a co-worker. Every one of us can and should expect that we will at times experience that kind of trouble. As important as relationships are, they are not easy. So there's the trouble from without. The second kind of trouble that's described here is what we might call trouble from within. So listen now again to verses 16 to 18. And there David says, Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble. You just make note of those words. Loneliness, affliction, troubles, anguish, distress. Distress. Have you ever felt any of those things? Now, we all have. And sometimes these troubles from within are related to the troubles from without, but sometimes they're not. Sometimes we just feel a sense of despair or despondency, and sometimes the reasons are a mystery to us. On at least two occasions in the Psalms, we find David wrestling with just that type of thing. Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 both end exactly the same way. So Psalm 42 ends like this. David says, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Psalm 43 ends the same same way. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? within me, right? Why do I have this trouble from within? And I point this out in part just to make sure that we don't suffer from some sort of spiritual delusion or super spiritual delusion of thinking, well, just because we know Jesus, we're not going to be subject to those types of troubles, the troubles from within. Now, if you read through the New Testament, if you read through what the Apostle Paul experienced in his life you will see that he experienced lots of different types of trouble in his life and in his ministry. But not all of that trouble was external or physical. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, "'Three times I was beaten with rods. "'Once I was stoned.'" And what he means by that is rocks were thrown at him, Right? Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And then he says, and apart from other things... There is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So we might hear all of that and think, well, you know, the burden from that can't be as great as the burden from those other things, those external troubles. But that burden that Paul experienced, that weighed just as heavily on him as the other things. Live long enough and you will experience internal Trouble or trouble from within. Live long enough and you will find yourself saying with David, as he does here, Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. You know, one of my uh, heroes in church history is Charles Spurgeon. His love for the Lord, his faithfulness to the word, his passion for the church. And his gift of preaching are, are, are among the things that have inspired me over the years. A few years back, I read a helpful book entitled Spurgeon's Sorrows that explored Spurgeon's battle with depression. Listen to what he said one Sunday as he stepped up to preach. He said, I almost regret this morning that I have ventured to occupy this pulpit because I feel utterly unable to preach to you for your profit. I had thought that the quiet and repose of the last fortnight had removed the effects of that terrible catastrophe, but on coming back to the same spot again and more especially standing here to address you, I feel somewhat of those same painful emotions which well-nigh prostrated me before. You will therefore excuse me this morning. I've been utterly unable to study. O Spirit of God, magnify thy strength in thy servant's weakness and enable him to honor his Lord even when his soul is cast down within him. Now, the background to that is that two weeks prior to that Sunday, as Spurgeon was preaching in his church, a prankster in the church called out, Fire! And everyone fled from that building. As they fled, seven people were trampled to death. Twenty-eight more people were seriously injured. And the papers in London blamed Spurgeon for the whole thing. He was actually haunted with that for the rest of his life. And he was open about the trouble he experienced from that event. And I just want to say, there is no shame... Or there should be no shame in experiencing trouble from within, of saying to the Lord, my soul is in distress. So there's the trouble from without, there is the trouble from within, and then the third trouble that's highlighted here is the trouble with sin. And this is actually the trouble that gets the most real estate in this psalm. So verse 7. David says, Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions according to your steadfast love. Remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. And then verse 11. For your namesake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. In verse 18. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. See, David knew that the major troubles in his life went deeper than the circumstances he was facing. They went deeper than just his distressed state of mind. His deepest troubles were the result of his sin, his rebellion against his loving creator. And he doesn't see this as a small problem. He refers to his iniquity as great and asks the Lord to take away all his sins, like all of them. I know there are many. Now, again, we know David's story. We know that in spite of all his successes personally, politically, materially, militarily, his life was also marked by sin. So, even if you had never read the Bible, if you've never read the Bible, you likely know two things about King David. You're likely familiar with two stories. The first is the story of David and Goliath, story of great victory. But the second one is the story of David and Bathsheba, a story of great failure. He's famous for those two things, or he's, he's famous for the first and infamous for the second. Now, earlier I mentioned the little superscriptions at the beginning of some of the Psalms. Psalm 51 contains this. Superscription. It says a psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So David had trouble from without. He had trouble from within, and he had trouble with his sin. And his story is not different from our story. So while this psalm is personal, it's David's, Psalm, it's clear that it's not meant to be understood as somehow unique. And the petition at the very end of this psalm is redeem Israel, O God, from all their troubles or all his troubles. So as I said, we can and should expect all kinds of trouble in our lives. In the New Testament, James says it this way. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Or troubles of various kinds. Jesus tells us, in this world, you will have trouble. So the question is, what do we do with those, these troubles? How do we learn to count it all joy when we face various trials? If every one of us can and should expect troubles in our lives, what are we supposed to do with those troubles? And that's what I want to explore with sort of our second flyover of this psalm. If the first thing we need to know is that we can and should expect to experience trouble, the second thing we need to know is that we need to remember where to find help for our troubles. Psalm 121, another psalm, begins like this. It says, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Now, those two verses use a question-and-answer format. And I take the expression to be something of a contrast. See, all of Israel's neighbors, they worshipped on what were described as high places. That's where they would set up altars to their various gods. The height of the place was important because in their minds, it, it was closer to the heavens. closer proximity to the gods. And the psalmist appears to be making a contrast. He's saying, look, my help doesn't come from where the pagan's help comes from. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And this psalm actually points us in that same direction. I want to point you in, in the direction of five things that we can do to navigate a world that is filled with trouble. The first thing we ought to do is to bring our troubles to God as a first course of action, not as a last resort. Notice again how the psalm begins. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Now, I know that seems really basic, but it's amazing how often we fail to do this. Now, I highlighted for you three different types of trouble that we find in this psalm, and what you find in each of them is that David brings those troubles directly before God. He's got external trouble, and so he prays, let not my enemies be exalted over me. He has internal trouble, and so he prays, turn to me and be gracious to me, for I'm lonely and afflicted. He has trouble with his sin, and so he prays, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. And this is what we ought to do. We ought to bring every trouble that we have before the Lord. None of it is too small, and none of it is too big. Jesus taught us to pray this way. Think about the petitions in the Lord's Prayer. We're physical creatures, and so Jesus teaches us to pray, Give us this day our daily bread. We're relational creatures. And so Jesus teaches us to pray and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. We're spiritual creatures. And so Jesus teaches us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Name a need, name a trouble, and you will find that it's something that we can bring before the Lord. Now, I said we ought to do this as a first course of action, not as a last resort. And the reason I draw your attention to that is because I think we are so quick to look in other directions. When we have external problems or we have relational problems, how often do do we turn to other people before we turn to the Lord? I mean, how often is our response, oh, you know, I just need to tell so-and-so about this or I just need to vent to someone about this how much better would it be to present those problems to the Lord first? When we have internal problems, how quick are we to turn to a prescription before we turn to the Lord? And I'm not trying to pretend to be a medical doctor or give you medical advice, but we are way over-medicated. And when we have problems, we ought to bring those problems to the Lord as a first course of action. And when we have problems with our sin how often do we do exactly what Adam and Eve did, run and try to hide from God instead of turning to him and confessing our guilt? The first thing we ought to do is what David does here. We ought to call out to God, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. And we ignore this to our own peril. We don't sing it anymore in the church, or it doesn't seem like we do, but one of my favorite hymns from an earlier era was was What a Friend We Have in Jesus. And the first verse of that hymn says this, What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. So the first commitment we ought to make at the start of our day even is to bring our troubles before the Lord. Second thing we ought to do is we ought to learn to trust in God's sovereignty, goodness, and timing. There's a tension in this psalm. You can see it in the contrast between the urgency of verse 2 and the assurance of verse 3. In verse 2, David says, Oh my God, I trust in you. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Right? You can sense. He's got tension. There's enemies encircling him. And then in verse 3, he says, Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly Treacherous. So David has enemies or foes. And these enemies posed a real threat to him, but the fear about them also posed a threat. And you can almost see the internal mechanics of how prayer works here. David begins by praying about his enemies in verse 2. His prayer is that he would not be put to shame, that his enemies wouldn't triumph over him. But then it's as if he reminds himself that he knows in the end no one who trusts in God will be put to shame. The people who will ultimately be put to shame, as David says, is those who are wantonly treacherous. And this is what I mean by saying we need to learn to trust in God's sovereignty and goodness. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves. Nothing goes unnoticed by God. Everything will be set right in the end. So we trust in God's sovereignty and goodness. We also need to trust in God's timing. David says, none who wait for you will be put to shame. He says it again in verse 5. For you I wait all the day long. And then that same theme appears again in verse 21. May integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. The idea is that ultimately no one who waits for God will be put to shame. But it might look like they have been for a time. See, we have our timetable, and God has his. We want instant justice, instant vindication, but that's not what we're promised. Now, we would love to have specifics. We would love to know when. Listen to what Paul says in the New Testament to encourage faithfulness and perseverance to the church in Galatia. He says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So when will we reap? In due season or in due time. When is that? Well, that's on God's timetable, not ours. The third commitment we ought to make is to seek God's wisdom and obey it. And you see this clearly in verses 4 and 5. And those verses say, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. See, David is pleading with God to guide him and direct him. He has a hunger to know the truth. And I think sometimes we approach reading the Bible as a chore, right? I, I have to get this done. I've got to check it off the list. But shouldn't we approach it more like a great delight? I've always been struck with Solomon's words to his son in Proverbs chapter 2, where he says this, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom, inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Solomon just piles up all these verbs. Receive, treasure, make your ear attentive, incline your heart, call out, raise your voice, seek, search. If we do those things, then we'll get wisdom. And David says the same thing here. Make me to know your ways. Teach me, lead me, guide me, direct me. In verses 8 and 9, David says, Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in, in his way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. God will do this. God instructs us and leads us and teaches us. And what we need to remember is that the primary way that God teaches us and instructs us and leads us is through his word. Now, I know you're in church, I'm a pastor. Of course, I'm going to tell you you ought to be in the word on a regular basis, you ought to read your Bibles. But I just want to say that that this is actually what we ought to do. I I say this to you whether I'm a pastor or not. One of the things I do, one of the habits or disciplines I learned uh, fairly early in my Christian life. So my practice when I open my Bible is to pray the words of Psalm 119, verse 18, where it says, open my eyes that I might behold wonderful things out of your law. Or sometimes I'll pray the words of the prophet Samuel where he said, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. That's what we ought to do. We ought to come and seek God's wisdom through his word. But we can't forget what verse 10 says as well because it says, All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his promises. So we don't study the Bible just for information or inspiration. We want to be changed by it and shaped by it. And the way we're changed by it and shaped by it is by obeying it. We do what it says. Fourth thing we ought to do to navigate the troubles in our lives is to confess our sin and rest in God's forgiveness. The teaching around this is so clear in verses 7, 11, and 18. I know I've already read those verses for you, but let me just take those verses and you just take note of what they teach us about about sin and forgiveness. Verse 7 says, Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. So David remembered his sins, even the sins he committed in his youth. And our past sins sometimes do come parading before us, reminding us of how unworthy we are before God. David's plea is that God wouldn't remember him like that, but instead that God would remember him according to God's steadfast love. Now, you know what? In truth, we actually understand this better than, than David did because we're on the other side of the cross We understand that when God looks at us, he doesn't just see us and our, or he doesn't see us in our sin. He sees us through Jesus. And one of the words the New Testament uses to describe us as Christians is the word justified. And that word as it is applied to us means just as if we had never sinned. Verse 11 says it this way. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. So on what grounds does David appeal to God for forgiveness? Notice he doesn't come sort of downplaying the magnitude of his sin or anything like that. He he doesn't say, well, I know I broke some of your commandments, but it it was a moment of weakness. It wasn't that big of a deal. He readily acknowledges the magnitude of his sin. My guilt is great. The basis of his appeal is, To God for forgiveness is that God would act for his name's sake. And see, our confidence in coming before God is in the character of God. And verse 18 adds this thought Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. So we sin every day, we do things and say things. And think things that violate God's commandments. To confess our sins is to acknowledge that before God. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 gives us the best counsel around this. There John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But then he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what do we do? But the trouble we have with sin, we confess it before God. Final thing we ought to remember as we seek to navigate our lives that are filled with trouble is that we ought to draw near to God knowing He will draw near to us. There's a kind of closeness that we can experience with God. Listen again to verses 14 and 15. Says the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net or out of the trap. You know, the Bible uses lots of different relational terms to describe our relationship with God. God is our king, we are his subjects. He gives the marching orders, and we are to obey. That's part of our relationship with God. God is our shepherd, and we are his sheep. We are utterly dependent on him and his goodness towards us. He protects us, provides for us. God is our father, and we relate to him as his children. We are adopted into God's family through Christ. Notice the term that's used here, though. The friendship of the Lord, or the friendship of God, is for those who fear Him. God is our friend. That is a staggering thought, or it should be. Now, there's still a reverence here. The friendship, the verse says that the friendship of the Lord is with those who fear Him. And I think it's important that we don't take all of the knee-knocking out of that phrase, the fear of the Lord. But that's precisely the wonder of this relationship with God. He is rightly worthy of all reverence and fear, but he calls us into a relationship that can be called friendship. This is a promise we have from God. James says it this way in the New Testament. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So we have this incredible opportunity to experience the very friendship of God, the close relational dynamic between ourselves and God, even in a world that is filled with trouble. Now, I thought it would be fitting for us to end this morning by praying the Lord's Prayer Together. And I don't know if that's on screen or not. If not, you can either just pray along as you know it uh, or pray along in your mind. Jesus taught us to pray like this Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Lord, I pray that that would be the cry of each of our hearts, that we would turn our sin over to you, confess it to you, that all of our troubles we would bring before you and that we would experience the very friendship of God. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.